militia following ratification. During the first two decades following the ratification of the Second Amendment, public opposition to standing armies, among anti-federalists and federalists alike, persisted and manifested itself locally as a general reluctance to create a professional armed police force, instead relying on county sheriffs, constables and night watchmen to enforce local ordinances. Though sometimes compensated, often these positions were unpaid, held as a matter of civic duty. In these early decades, law enforcement officers were rarely armed with firearms, using billy clubs as their sole defensive weapons. In serious emergencies, a posse comitatus, militia company, or group of vigilantes assumed law enforcement duties, these individuals were more likely than the local sheriff to be armed with firearms. On May 8, 1792, Congress passed an act more effectually to provide for the national defense, by establishing an uniform militia throughout the United States requiring each and every free able-bodied white male citizen of the respective states, resident therein, who is or shall be of age of 18 years, and under the age of 45 years, except as is hereinafter accepted, shall severally and respectively be enrolled in the militia, every citizen so enrolled and notified, shall, within six months thereafter, provide himself with a good musket or firelock, a sufficient bayonet and belt, two spare flints, and a knapsack, a pouch with a box therein to contain not less than twenty-four cartridges, suited to the bore of his musket or firelock, each cartridge to contain a proper quantity of powder and ball, or with a good rifle, knapsack, shot pouch and powder horn, twenty balls suited to the bore of his rifle, and a quarter of a pound of powder, and shall appear, so armed, accoutred and provided, when called out to exercise, or into service, except, that when called out on company days to exercise only, he may appear without a knapsack. The Act also gave specific instructions to domestic weapon manufacturers that from and after five years from the passing of this Act, muskets for arming the militia as herein required, shall be of bore sufficient for balls of the eighteenth part of a pound. In practice, private acquisition and maintenance of rifles and muskets meeting specifications and readily available for militia duty proved problematic, estimates of compliance ranged from 10 to 65 percent. Compliance with the enrollment provisions was also poor. In addition to the exemptions granted by the law for custom house officers and their clerks, post officers and stage drivers employed in the care and conveyance of U.S. mail, ferrymen, export inspectors, pilots, merchant mariners and those deployed at sea in active service, state legislatures granted numerous exemptions under Section 2 of the Act, including exemptions for, clergy, conscientious objectors, teachers, students, and jurors. Though a number of able-bodied white men remained available for service, many simply did not show up for militia duty. Penalties for failure to appear were enforced sporadically and selectively. None is mentioned in the legislation. The first test of the militia system occurred in July 1794, when a group of disaffected Pennsylvania farmers rebelled against federal tax collectors whom they viewed as illegitimate tools of tyrannical power. Attempts by the four adjoining states to raise a militia for nationalization to suppress the insurrection proved inadequate. When officials resorted to drafting men, they faced bitter resistance. Forthcoming soldiers consisted primarily of draftees or paid substitutes as well as poor enlistees lured by enlistment bonuses. The officers, however, were of a higher quality, responding out of a sense of civic duty and patriotism, and generally critical of the rank and file. Most of the 13,000 soldiers lacked the required weaponry. The War Department provided nearly two-thirds of them with guns. In October, President George Washington and General Harry Lee marched on the 7,000 rebels who conceded without fighting. The episode provoked criticism of the citizen militia and inspired calls for a universal militia. 
Secretary of War Henry Knox and Vice President John Adams had lobbied Congress to establish federal armories to stock imported weapons and encourage domestic production. Congress did subsequently pass an act for the erecting and repairing of arsenals and magazines on April 2, 1794, two months prior to the insurrection. Nevertheless, the militia continued to deteriorate and 20 years later, the militia's poor condition contributed to several losses in the War of 1812, including the sacking of Washington, D.C., and the burning of the White House in 1814. In the 20th century, Congress passed the Militia Act of 1903. The act defined the militia as every able-bodied male aged 18 to 44 who was a citizen or intended to become one. The militia was then divided by the act into the United States National Guard and the Unorganized Reserve Militia. Federal law continues to define the militia as all able-bodied males aged 17 to 44, who are citizens or intend to become one, and female citizens who are members of the National Guard. The militia is divided into the organized militia, which consists of the National Guard and Naval Militia, and the unorganized militia. Scholarly Commentary Early Commentary Richard Henry Lee In May of 1788, Richard Henry Lee wrote in additional letters from the Federal Farmer No. 169 or Letter 18 regarding the definition of a militia. A militia, when properly formed, are in fact the people themselves, and render regular troops in a great measure unnecessary. George Mason In June of 1788, George Mason addressed the Virginia Ratifying Convention regarding a militia. A worthy member has asked, Who are the militia, if they be not the people, of this country, and if we are not to be protected from the fate of the Germans, Prussians, and C. By our representation? I ask who are the militia? They consist now of the whole people, except a few public officers. But I cannot say who will be the militia of the future day. If that paper on the table gets no alteration, the militia of the future day may not consist of all classes, high and low, and rich and poor, but may be confined to the lower and middle classes of the people, granting exclusion to the higher classes of the people. If we should ever see that day, the most ignominious punishments and heavy fines may be expected. Under the present government all ranks of people are subject to militia duty. Tenchcox. In 1792, Tenchcox made the following point in a commentary on the Second Amendment. As civil rulers, not having their duty to the people duly before them they attempt to tyrannize, and as the military forces which must be occasionally raised to defend our country, might pervert their power to the injury of their fellow citizens, the people are confirmed by the next article in their right to keep and bear their private arms. Tucker slash Blackstone. The earliest published commentary on the Second Amendment by a major constitutional theorist was by St. George Tucker. He annotated a five-volume edition of Sir William Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England, a critical legal reference for early American attorneys published in 1803. Tucker wrote, A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms, shall not be infringed. Amendments to C.U.S. Article 4. This may be considered as the true palladium of liberty, the right of self-defense is the first law of nature, in most governments it has been the study of rulers to confine this right within the narrowest limits possible. Wherever standing armies are kept up, and the right of the people to keep and bear arms is, under any color or pretext whatsoever, prohibited, liberty, if not already annihilated, is on the brink of destruction. In England, the people have been disarmed, generally, under the specious pretext of preserving the game, a never-failing lure to bring over the landed aristocracy to support any measure, under that mast, though calculated for very different purposes. True it is, their Bill of Rights seems at first view to counteract this policy, but the right of bearing arms is confined to Protestants, and the words suitable to their condition and degree, 
have been interpreted to authorize the prohibition of keeping a gun or other engine for the destruction of game, to any farmer, or inferior tradesman, or other person not qualified to kill game. So that not one man in 500 can keep a gun in his house without being subject to a penalty. In footnotes 40 and 41 of the commentaries, Tucker stated that the right to bear arms under the Second Amendment was not subject to the restrictions that were part of English law, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Amendments to CUS Article 4, and this without any qualification as to their condition or degree, as is the case in the British government and whoever examines the forest and game laws in the British Code, will readily perceive that the right of keeping arms is effectually taken away from the people of England. Blackstone himself also commented on English game laws, volume 2, page 412, that the prevention of popular insurrections and resistance to government by disarming the bulk of the people, is a reason oftener meant than avowed by the makers of the forest and game laws. Blackstone discussed the right of self-defense in a separate section of his treatise on the common law of crimes. Tucker's annotations for that latter section did not mention the Second Amendment but cited the standard works of English jurists such as Hawkins. Further, Tucker criticized the English Bill of Rights for limiting gun ownership to the very wealthy, leaving the populace effectively disarmed, and expressed the hope that Americans never cease to regard the right of keeping and bearing arms as the surest pledge of their liberty. William Raleigh. Tucker's commentary was soon followed, in 1825, by Bev William Raleigh in his landmark text A View of the Constitution of the United States of America. Like Tucker, Raleigh condemned England's arbitrary code for the preservation of game, portraying that country as one that boasts so much of its freedom, yet provides a right to Protestant subjects only that it cautiously described to be that of bearing arms for their defense and reserves for a very small proportion of the people in contrast, Raleigh characterizes the second clause of the Second Amendment, which he calls the Corollary Clause, as a general prohibition against such capricious abuse of government power. Speaking of the Second Amendment generally, Raleigh said, The prohibition is general. No clause in the Constitution could by any rule of construction be conceived to give to Congress a power to disarm the people. Such a flagitious attempt could only be made under some general pretense by a state legislature. But if in any blind pursuit of inordinate power, either should attempt it, this amendment may be appealed to as a restraint on both. Raleigh, long before the concept of incorporation was formally recognized by the courts, or Congress drafted the 14th Amendment, contended that citizens could appeal to the Second Amendment should either the state or federal government attempt to disarm them. He did warn, however, that this right ought not be abused to the disturbance of the public peace and, paraphrasing Koch, observed, an assemblage of persons with arms, for unlawful purpose, is an indictable offense, and even the carrying of arms abroad by a single individual, attended with circumstances giving just reason to fear that he purposes to make an unlawful use of them, would be sufficient cause to require him to give surety of the peace. Joseph Story. Joseph Story articulated in his influential commentaries on the Constitution the orthodox view of the Second Amendment, which he viewed as the amendment's clear meaning. The right of the citizens to keep and bear arms has justly been considered, as the palladium of the liberties of a republic, since it offers a strong moral check against the usurpations and arbitrary power of rulers, and it will generally, even if these are successful in the first instance, enable the people to resist and triumph over them. And yet, though this truth would seem so clear, and the importance of a well-regulated militia would seem so undeniable, it cannot be disguised, that among the American people there is a growing indifference to any system of militia discipline, and a strong disposition, from a sense of its burdens, to be rid of all regulations how it is practicable to keep the people duly armed without some organization, it is difficult to see. There is certainly no small danger, that indifference may lead to disgust, and disgust to contempt, and thus gradually undermine all the protection intended by this clause of our National Bill of Rights. 
Story describes a militia as the natural defense of a free country, both against foreign foes, domestic revolts and usurpation by rulers. The book regards the militia as a moral check against both usurpation and the arbitrary use of power, while expressing distress at the growing indifference of the American people to maintaining such an organized militia, which could lead to the undermining of the protection of the Second Amendment. Lysander Spooner. Abolitionist Lysander Spooner, commenting on bills of rights, stated that the object of all bills of rights is to assert the rights of individuals against the government, and that the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms was in support of the right to resist government oppression, as the only security against the tyranny of government lies in forcible resistance to injustice, for injustice will certainly be executed, unless forcibly resisted. Spooner's theory provided the intellectual foundation for John Brown and other radical abolitionists who believed that arming slaves was not only morally justified, but entirely consistent with the Second Amendment. An express connection between this right and the Second Amendment was drawn by Lysander Spooner who commented that a right of resistance is protected by both the right to trial by jury and the Second Amendment. The congressional debate on the proposed 14th Amendment concentrated on what the southern states were doing to harm the newly freed slaves, including disarming the former slaves. Timothy Farrar. In 1867, Judge Timothy Farrar published his Manual of the Constitution of the United States of America, which was written when the 14th Amendment was in the process of adoption by the state legislatures. The states are recognized as governments, and, when their own constitutions permit, may do as they please, provided they do not interfere with the Constitution and laws of the United States, or with the civil or natural rights of the people recognized thereby, and held in conformity to them. The right of every person to life, liberty, and property, to keep and bear arms, to the writ of habeas corpus to trial by jury, and divers others, are recognized by, and held under, the Constitution of the United States, and cannot be infringed by individuals or even by the government itself. Judge Thomas Cooley. Judge Thomas M. Cooley, perhaps the most widely read constitutional scholar of the 19th century, wrote extensively about this amendment, and he explained in 1880 how the Second Amendment protected the right of the people. It might be supposed from the phraseology of this provision that the right to keep and bear arms was only guaranteed to the militia, but this would be an interpretation not warranted by the intent. The militia, as has been elsewhere explained, consists of those persons who, under the law, are liable to the performance of military duty, and are officered and enrolled for service when called upon. But the law may make provision for the enrollment of all who are fit to perform military duty, or of a small number only, or it may wholly omit to make any provision at all. And if the right were limited to those enrolled, the purpose of this guarantee might be defeated altogether by the action or neglect to act of the government it was meant to hold in check. The meaning of the provision undoubtedly is, that the people, from whom the militia must be taken, shall have the right to keep and bear arms, and they need no permission or regulation of law for the purpose. But this enables the government to have a well-regulated militia, for to bear arms implies something more than the mere keeping, it implies the learning to handle and use them in a way that makes those who keep them ready for their efficient use, in other words, it implies the right to meet for voluntary discipline in arms, observing and doing so the laws of public order. The text of this podcast is sourced from the Wikipedia Foundation under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The written text has been altered for voice presentation. To view the modified and original text versions visit thelegalpages.com. The content of this podcast is presented for informational purposes only and is not intended to be legal or professional advice. The Wikipedia Foundation is not affiliated with this podcast.